Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with all of you this morning. Super excited to be here. Uh, Today is a big day. It comes around once every few months here at Mosaic Church, and and it's always an important moment. Uh, Today, we get to move onto a new page in the Bible. We have been on the same page since June, and today... I get to call out a new page number, 1046 instead of 1045. So we'll be on that for the next few months, and then we'll have another day like this that we'll get to celebrate together. Uh, But uh, as much as it is exciting that we are moving on to a new page, what makes that so exciting is not that it's a new page. It is that there is new wonders to be discovered on this new page that are unfolding out of what God has revealed to us. And that's what makes coming together here as we engage in the wonders of the Word of God so extraordinary, is that waiting for us is more wonder in the mercy and grace and power and, and beauty and magnitude of God yet to be discovered so that we can have a clearer vision of what this life and life beyond this is all about so that we engage rightly in the realities in which we live. And the book of Romans, which Paul is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit to the church in Rome, is an extraordinary unpacking of the redemptive story of God, uh, the gospel. The, the whole story from beginning to end is, is essentially summarized in this beautiful book, the book of Romans. And so we are getting a Genesis to Revelation kind of experience, but all through this letter in intricacy uh, and the beauty of the intricacies of the, the gospel and in simplicity, just the magnitude and wonder of what the gospel means for us and what God has done for us. And so we have been traveling through that. As many of you guys know, we are in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, a super, super fun part of the book of Romans because uh, it is beginning to unpack for us the implications to us considering the redemptive story of God. It's beginning to really kind of go, okay, this gets really amazing. Because remember, Paul is working toward Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we have a clarity of the mercy of God to such an extent that we're overwhelmed. And then he goes, now that you see, now let's talk, right? And in in chapter 8, it is just wow, wow. So uh, we came out of chapter 7, where we discovered there that we were once uh, governed by an external code, the law. And we were supposed to live up to that external code so that we would, through our practice, the practicality of our life, uh, create and demonstrate our worth to be positionally with Christ. But the trouble is, because of our sinful nature, we, we could not and, and would not, and positionally we were not in Christ, and so we couldn't live up to that. So here's what chapter 7 said. Now that Christ has done a work for you that you could not do, now that Christ has undone the virus of sin in you so that you are not weakened by the sinful nature any longer, now you are released from the external code of the law, but you are bound to the one who is your code now, the Spirit of God himself. It is this beautiful transition from our bondage to an external code that we could not live up to, therefore, demonstrating our positional reality of, of, of separated from God and, 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 and tied and enslaved to death. We are now completely changed. The Spirit of God is in us because of the redemptive work of Jesus, and we are now positionally right in Christ and therefore are now governed by the Spirit to live in righteousness. Our position 
is what matters because that's a work of God. And our practical everyday stuff is the progression in which we live, becoming more like Christ. Our, our, our practice does not impact our position. Praise God. Our position deeply impacts our practice. Praise God. And so he is showing us our position so that the more we see that, the more we go, wow, why would I be foolish enough to live as an insane fool rather than one who lives in the position that I now have in Christ in freedom, life, and light. So chapter eight, right? What does it mean that we have the spirit? So awesome, right? Here's what he says first. First of all, what you could not do, what the law could not do, what nobody could do because the, the law was weakened by the sinful nature, Christ did in redeeming us. His work, his work alone for us, uh, nothing we earned. As we have been rescued by the great redemptive work of Christ, we received the Holy Spirit who became a seal for us to that end. And the implication, the first fruit of our soul rescue is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Then the fact that we have the Holy Spirit, here's what we now know that the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead will raise our bodies from the dead. Wow, first guarantee by the spirit, you have a future of life and not death. That's big. Second guarantee, not only do you have a future that is life and not death, but in the here and now as you wrestle with sin, the spirit of God empowers you to righteousness, invites you to righteousness, And he testifies with your spirit that you are not only free, not only uh, set free for eternity, but you are adopted as children of God. Remember the the passage we said, the spirit of God allows us, invites us to say, Abba, Father, Daddy, we are children of God. Then the spirit shows us we're not only children of God, but heirs to God and heirs along with Christ. To all things wonderful. Wow! Wow! And then, you remember, he says now, since we are heirs with Christ, children of God, free, we also, while we live on this planet, are heirs with Christ in the great work of redemption that he produced. We're not just recipients of a future glory, but we are participants in a present redemption. And how did Jesus redeem? By coming to planet death, suffering on our behalf as we should have, carrying our darkness, our sin, our struggle, the brokenness that was us, and then dying under its weight, uh, the, the ultimate display of suffering, only to rise from the dead and display his power to produce glory and life on the other end, right? So how could we think that our journey that we have inherited from Christ would look any different? So that's what Paul's getting at. And he goes, look, you still live on planet death in the midst of an unredeemed broken space. So this ideology that says, now that I'm in Jesus, the happiness should begin, not the right view, okay? Because it's not realistic, because it's not true. And then he goes into chapter eight. Listen, we are going to experience suffering on this planet. And here's why. Because the planet's broken. The universe is broken. Our bodies are still broken. There's a lot of unredeemed things still going on. And sin still has a will. And it is exerting its will. And the enemy of God still has a will. And he is exerting his will. And we, our flesh, still have will. And that is exerted despite our rescue. And other people that don't know Jesus, they have a will. And they're exerting that will. And all of those wills combined are toward uh, the fruit of death. So this is going to be a rough space. 
And we know that because creation's longing for full redemption. Uh, all things are longing for the new and even us. Remember he said, even us, our spirits are longing for the realization uh, of redemption. And then he says this, look, this is gonna be hard, but there is hope. There is hope. But then he says, he doesn't go like this. There's hope, so it's gonna be easy. There's hope, so it's all fine. Aren't you just happy now? Huh, there's terrible suffering, but there's hope. No, he goes, no, no, just because there's hope doesn't mean it's not gonna be hard. Oh, it's gonna be hard. In fact, after he says there's great hope, I'm gonna get to that in a second, but remember, it's still gonna be hard. He even says that in our weakness under the hard of what we will find no meaning in and see the destruction of this space, diseases and difficulties and struggles and relational conflicts and resource challenges and all the stuff that comes with living this life. And we're gonna go, this is too much. This makes no sense. This is terrible. Where is God? Why isn't he here? When all that happens and we are in our weakness, the spirit of God will pray on our behalf when we're too emotionally exhausted to even pray because the circumstances are so hopeless. The spirit of God is still interceding for us because he knows, sees things we cannot. And so we have hope in that. And then when he gets to that part in our weakness, he will intercede for us. This is what it means to have the spirit. He will be enough for us. He then gives the church a gift, an incredible gift, an amazing gift. So what Paul's about to do, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he's been talking in the here and now, Here's what the Spirit's doing us for, for us now. Here's how that's gonna affect things now. Here's the hardness of this world now. Here's the hope that he will be for you now. Here's how you sustain. And now he's gonna go like this. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I wanna show you something. This is gonna be crazy. I wanna show you something. And he's gonna pull back the curtains and go, do you, wanna, do you wanna know what all this means, not for the here and now, but for the yet to come? Do you wanna see what real hope is? Do you wanna see what real wonder is? And he's about to pull back the curtain for us and show us something we can't begin to imagine. Now, I'm gonna give you a warning, okay? We are moving from the temporal into the eternal space now. For the next, for the next little while, we're gonna be in the eternal space. And the eternal space is super weird, okay? Because we have no context for it. You live in time and space, as I do. So when we think of eternity, we think of it as a long time. It is not a long time. It is no time at all. There is no passing of time. Then we go, well, there's no passing of time. That sounds boring. You just are. Uh, but it's not boring. And it's not like that. It is nothing that we can conceive of because it exists outside of anything we know. So the second we step into eternal things, there should be a part of you that goes, I don't understand. And that's okay. In fact, Peter, the great disciple who spent a great deal of time with Jesus, followed Jesus and wrote the books of First and Second Peter and was a giant part of everything in the early New Testament church. He writes in scripture, whenever I read Paul, he's hard to understand. No, he did. he's like, Paul is insane. Not in a bad way, but like, it's complicated. So he says he finds it hard to grasp the extraordinary wonder of what the Spirit of God revealed to Paul. If Peter's finding it hard, we ought to. You know what I'm saying? If you're like, oh, that's a cakewalk. It makes perfect sense to me. Then you're not hearing it right because Peter couldn't, couldn't quite grasp it. And even Paul himself, at the end of chapter 11 of the book of Romans, after he now unpacks chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 with these mysteries of eternity and the mysteries of God's character and the mysteries of God's sovereignty and the mysteries of God's wonder, uh, Paul himself will say, I've just unpacked some incredible things, but they're still mysterious even to me. Like he'll even go, I... I don't, I don't think I quite get what I just wrote. I love that. So we're entering some crazy cool space because it is going to be spaces 
that are not actually spaces we ought to grasp. And yet God bothers to show them to us because not to confuse us, but because to give us hope. To allow us to step into a space we cannot even yet quite understand, but go, wow, this, this is what is yet to come. And then we step, we step back from behind the curtain, but we now know. So, as we step into the space, we step into this verse. Watch this. Okay, grab your Bibles. Page 1046. Not 1045. 1046, if you're using one of our Bibles. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. So in verse 27, um, uh, he said, And he who searches hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We have one who is for us as we wrestle with the realities of the suffering that this world produces. Okay? And, and then he gets into a verse that is amazing. Verse 28. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Does that verse sound familiar? Like, yeah, I've seen that on posters before. <laughs> I've actually used that verse on my Facebook stream and thrown it in my Instagram to, to let me... Uh, so this is a drive-by verse, okay? Uh, these are the drive-by verses we use, the, the pixie dust verses, and... and, and Unfortunately, in the way that they are most often used, they are very damaging, okay? So a drive-by verse is the kind of verse that you pull out of its context, and as you drive by someone who's struggling, you toss it at them so that you can avoid engaging with them. It's an easy way to get through suffering because we don't really know how to deal with one another when we're really, really struggling. So we throw Band-Aid verses and go, Oh, that's tragic, but don't worry. God works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according. And it's like, thank you. And somehow, immediately, we feel incredibly better about the horror in which we live. And the person who threw us the drive-by verse just keeps driving. You know those little dogs? that sit in the car and they bark at the other dogs as long as you're driving by. But the second you open the door, the dog tail between them. So that's how we handle these verses a lot. We don't really want to engage in suffering because we are human avoiders of suffering. And so we just want to throw quick, neat, big verses about silver linings. And this is one of them. And this verse is true. Whether we throw it around like pixie dust or use it as a drive-by, it's still true but it is so much more than what we use it for and so much more rich in its wonder than the way we throw it around. And when we throw it around, we create space for deep misunderstanding. So what is this verse not? Okay, what is it not? Just right off the bat, there's a couple things about this verse. It, it starts this way, right? Uh, where am I? There you go. Look at this. For we know that for those who love God, Okay, so there's the first damaging part of this verse if you're throwing it around like a drive-by verse or pixie dust, okay? Because immediately when somebody is in deep struggle on this planet and we throw this verse out, for those that love God, your first conclusion could be, if I love God, then he'll work things out for the good, but apparently I don't, right? So it's like, for those who love God, how's your love for God going? Did you love him yesterday? No, I hated him because I'm suffering and this is really hard. So I said to God, where are you? I hate you. And that's why it's going badly. See, we have this ideology that says this is for a special group of people and only for a special group of people within the body of Christ. It's for those who actually love God. 
But you see, that's not what this verse is all about at all. Because for the, for the entire extent of Romans, what has he been showing us? That he is using interchangeably the sense of our relationship with God, our intimacy with God, our belonging to God as a consequence of the grace of God. So what he's really saying, he's saying, to those who belong to God, who love God, who he loves. It's those who have a relationship with God that he has established that, remember, we are slaves to righteousness, slaves to freedom, slaves to a guarantee of our finished work in Christ. We will love God. Sorry, you're stuck with that. To those who belong to God, who love God, who know God, here's what you can know. See, when we're facing planet earth and all of its reality and all of the brokenness of our own flesh and ourself and the other humans and all of that, and it produces a giant mess that has no meaning and no explanation other than it's horrible, what he says is to those of you that belong to God, there's something else you ought to know. There's something else you ought to know. And it's to all of you that belong to God. It is not if you love God, it is those who belong to God. All things work together for good. Now, this is a key, right? Here's what it's not, okay? It's not saying that God does all things because they're all part of what's good for you. I want you to pay close attention now because we mess this up when we throw this thing around, right? What we hear is that even the horrible stuff, God is doing it, or we say allowing it because it's good for us, right? Oh, God, th this is... This is for your good. It's, 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 and so here's what we can, I am suffering because God needs this to finish the work in me. God doesn't need your suffering to finish the work in you. God doesn't need things to go badly to make it all good. God doesn't need the brokenness to make the beauty. The brokenness is already here. And the, the stuff comes already without God needing or, or making or affecting any of it. Tsunamis and, and tornadoes and diseases and suffering and human relational conflicts and relational, I mean, uh, uh, resource challenges and losing of jobs and, and persecution. God doesn't need that stuff to finish the work that he began in you or me. And he doesn't create that stuff because it's good for us. It's not good for us. It's death and it's horrible and it should be grieved. So the verse does not say, he, God, for those who love him, makes everything happen because it's good for you. What he says is, everything that happens, even the stuff that's terrible for you, he will do something with it to move it from meaninglessness horror to something that will make sense, not because it makes sense, but because he will make it make sense. He doesn't make it. The will of man, the will of sin, the will of the enemy, the will of brokenness, the will of death makes it. But he will make it matter. There's a huge difference. He doesn't need it. Your suffering is not because God needs you to suffer. Your suffering is because we live on planet death. In the flesh of, a body of flesh and death. With wills. The will of the evil one, the will of my flesh, the will of creation, the will of sin producing death. And here's what this verse does not say. God's doing all of that because it's good for you. And he's doing it because you're one of the people that love him or you don't love him and that's why he's doing it because he's punishing you. It's none of those things. It's none of those things. And then here's the other thing that it's not. It is not a cosmic guarantee for a silver lining on this planet. Mm. What? 
It is not a cosmic guarantee that any of the horrible stuff that we will face on this planet will have a silver lining while we're here. See, we do this all the time, don't we? We gather together and it's going terribly and you've had some giant tragedy. You're, you're dealing with a disease in someone you love that just doesn't make any sense or, or your aging parents are going through that crazy stage of human existence where everything's falling apart and they're grumpy and mad. I get it. I'm going to be grumpy and mad too when I'm 95 and everything's falling apart. And you may just get used to it because it's going to be that way. I'm not naive enough to believe I won't. I'm going to be mad at everybody. And so... It, it's, it, we go through these very, very difficult stages and then we say things like this. You know, God's just going to use this to make you such a great counselor to others going through this in the future. Whoop-dee-doo. <laughs> There's the big hello. Oh, God needs you to be really good with other people that suffer so he's going to suffer you so you can become a great counselor. No, no, that is not the character of God. God does not produce suffering or allow suffering so you can become a better help to somebody else. He doesn't produce suffering so some other beauty will come. So we constantly try to extract meaning from the current suffering and horror, but meaning that has an immediate or at least uh, on this planet transfer to a silver lining. And we think this verse is the answer to that. Hey, don't worry that all hell is breaking loose in your entire life. Here's the silver lining. Soon some good will come of it. You'll be a great counselor or this other story will arrive. Don't we do that all the time? God, show me the story that will come from this that will make this mean something. Here's the meaning of suffering. You want meaning for suffering? You want all the meaning that Scripture has given us for suffering? We live on planet death. There it is. You want to know the meaning, the reason, the great why, God? Because we live on planet death, embodied death, and sin still has its way. That's it. It should be grieved all the stuff we deal with, all the brokenness. It's not okay. And it shouldn't be a quick fix with a cosmic guarantee for a silver lining. Now, are there silver linings that come out of bad stuff? Yes, absolutely. Whew, you're relieved, aren't you? I thought you were saying there'll never be a silver lining. Well, that's dumb. We see plenty of silver linings all the time. And will you become a better counselor to other people because you've gone through stuff? Yes. And will that be helpful to the kingdom of God? Yes. And is it awesome that sometimes out of really hard stories, really beautiful stuff comes? Yes. But this verse doesn't guarantee any of that. This verse isn't about that. That just happens to be another consequence of God's grace on this planet that as the body of Christ, sometimes out of hard, some things come that are awesome. But this verse is not about that. And here's why we know that. Verse 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, those who belong to God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now we, we should ask a question, for good, what does that mean? And the first three words, and we know. How do we know? I mean, do you just take it at face value? Paul said it, so we must know. See, Paul didn't say, and I know that all things will work together for good. He said, and we know. I always hate that in class, don't you? And some of this, you, know, you all know how this works, right? And then nobody wants to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I have no idea. <laughs> we all just nod. Uh-huh. Do you have any clue? I don't have any clue. Whatever. Just roll on, right? So often, and we know that this is, we don't know anything. How do I know this is true? How do I know Paul's, it'll be fine. And we know that this is going to be for good. How do we know? Now, Paul's going to answer the, and we know, and the, 
great good that this is all working toward in the next few sentences. Watch this. Watch this. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That seems like a strange next sentence, doesn't it? Because you just went from this like, there's going to be great suffering in the world because it's planet death and because sin is still at work and, and everyone's groaning, but don't worry, the Spirit of God is with you through all the stuff. And by the way, this stuff in of itself is not what God is producing. It doesn't mean anything. It's just death, but don't worry because there is this great vision that in this beauty of just death, God is up to something. And then the next sentence, God foreknew and predestined for conformity to Christ. It sounds like a theological statement, doesn't it? I mean, it is a theological statement, but it sounds like one too, right? You're like, oh boy, we're in theology class now. What is about to happen, and I'll show you, is that God here, the Spirit of God here through Paul is not intending this as a theological unpacking, though it is that as a part of it. He is intending this as a declaration of hope by demonstrating the character of God so that we can understand who God is, so that we can understand what this verse really is. Because we've talked about what it's not, but we should talk about what it is, shouldn't we? What is verse 28? Here's what it is, and I'll show you through the verses yet to come. It is a declaration that the one who is our father the one who we now belong to, the one who we are now children of, the one who we are heirs of and heirs with, that one, here's what he is. He is an author, a composer, an artist that can have stuff thrown at him and he is able to take that stuff and pour it into the piece of art he's producing, the story he's authoring, the composition he's creating, and he can bring all the messy notes and all the messy colors and all the messy chapters, and you can toss them at him, and he is able to take every one of them as they come and go, oh, this, what's this? It was a useless, horrid note, a terrible color, and an insane chapter that has no meaning, and I will weave it into the grand story that I'm writing, and it will become beautiful. Have you ever heard um, an orchestra practice? So you, you hear this beautiful symphony that somebody created, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. We pay hundreds of dollars to go hear people uh, run around on violins and do cool stuff, right? And we're like blown away. Have you ever heard the practices? Do you know what a minor chord is? Minor chord's terrible. It's like Jaws, right? I mean, it's scary. It doesn't feel good. It's not. And do and you know that half the instruments in the entire orchestra play the silliest things? I mean, okay, oboes, your part. Let me hear it. Neatner, 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 neatner. And you're like, that's what I'm going to pay to come and listen to? Neatner, neatner. Oh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. But then when you show up, what you don't hear is neatner, neatner, and Jaws. You don't hear that you hear this extraordinary, wondrous display of how the minor notes and the oboes and everybody else comes together. And when you see it in its whole, all the parts make sense. In a book, when you're reading, sometimes you encounter a chapter or a movie, you encounter a scene and you're like, oh, I can't watch that. Oh, I'm skipping. This is a terrible chapter. Chapter 17 was terrible. Until you get to the end of the book. And then you go, without chapter 17, the story, the story didn't work. Or an artist. Have you ever watched an artist's work? Throwing colors on a thing and it makes no sense. And you're like, this artist is terrible. 
I mean, she's legitimately terrible, just in colors. And then until the painting is finished and you go, this artist is amazing. What if you could do all of that, but you could do it without you designing it from scratch, but you could design it as things were coming in that you didn't even intend? God has, is, and always will be weaving all things together so that his story His beautiful redemptive story is completed. And he can do it every second of every day without hesitation. And here's why he can. Ready? (laughs) Theology 101 and some awesome hope. Watch this. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Foreknew comes from the root word of foreknowledge. And when we think of foreknowledge, we think of knowledge you had beforehand. You with me so far? Does that make sense? So I knew something before it happened so that I now know it. So we could say, God knows the future, which he does, right? He knows it, or I know something. I have knowledge beforehand. But in the scriptures, the word foreknowledge was not used after the Industrial Revolution, Why? Because it was written before the Industrial Revolution where information became our God instead of relationship, okay? And so what happened is we think of foreknowledge as an informational terminology. I have information that makes me know something. But in Scripture, in the Hebrew context and in the New Testament, foreknowledge was always a relational term, not an informational term. It, or, or to know, just, just to know was a relational term, not an informational term. So, for example, when a, uh, a young couple got married, right, uh, and they, they had their wedding celebration, and then the first night uh, they went and they consummated their marriage. The next morning you would say of that husband and wife, he know, knows her, she knows him. That's how they used it in Hebrew. Now, did they have any additional information about each other after the first night? No, because they did very little talking, right? <laughs> right? But yet we would say they knew each other. That's how the Old Testament uses knowledge or foreknowledge. To say that you foreknew is to say that you knew this person, you were intimate with this person prior to, right? So I was intimate with you before is what foreknew means. In Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, in the first verse it says, to the elect that are dispersed around by their, or according to the foreknowledge of God. It's not according to what God knew, it's that He knew you. He was intimate with you before you. What? what? He was intimate with you before you. How do I know? David writes, Psalm 139, you knew me before you knit me together in my mother's womb. What? It's not you knew of me, you knew about me, you were intimate with me. What a crazy thing. And here he says, do you want to know why I can say that we know that God is weaving all this into not a cosmic guarantee for a silver lining, but a future hope that is so extraordinary that even when what is happening now has no meaning we can perceive that we can know this meaningless suffering that is the result of planet death and body death will be woven into a story that will be beautiful. How do we know? Because before you even had breath, he had intimately engaged in a story with you. 
before you existed. Peter in chapter 1 verse 20, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20, he will literally say, Christ, the Lamb of God who would become our sacrifice, before the foundations of time, he was foreknown, is the word in the ESV. In the NIV, it says he was chosen before the foundations of the time. The word foreknew and chosen are interchangeable because it is the I knew of him. You know what that means? Just by the way, side note, this is crazy, super crazy. Okay, before Adam and Eve were foolish enough to eat of the fruit, Jesus was already the lamb of God ready to redeem the world. What? Do you understand now why God can say, you have this vision and within this vision, seeing this color on the canvas or seeing this chapter 19 in the book or listening to this minor note, that it is clear that you are going to think this is meaningless because it is meaningless by itself. But I'm not producing it for meaning. It is meaningless. I'm going to make it beautiful because I can take meaningless, horrible death and make it life, freedom, and light. Because I've always been, and I am, and I always will be. God, wait for it now, predetermined that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. So here's another crazy part, okay? So not only in our past did he know us before we were woven together, but in our future, he has already preset a finished promise for us. The work he began in you, he will bring to completion. And what is that work? Your conformity to Christ. So here's what that means, okay? Wait, buckle up, here we go, okay? Does God know the future? Okay, the answer is yes, just in case you're like, uh, is this a trick? No, no, he knows the future, okay? <laughs> Does he know the future because he sees the future? Yes, but it's more than that. It's bigger than that. My present is God's present. Agreed? My past is God's present. What? It's his present. He's presently present in my present and in my past. And my future is God's present. Why don't you get that? Why don't I get that? Because we live inside of time. And he lives outside of time. So time is irrelevant to him. He is presently present. When we say God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, those words, the omnipresent one is not a geographical reality. He's here on the moon, Venus, and in Africa. That is true. He is in all those places. But it's actually a time and space reality. He's presently present, and he's presently in my future, and he's presently in my past. Which means that 45 years ago, before I was conceived in my mother's womb, this day, on this stage, preaching this message, being here with you, was present for God. It wasn't something he knew would happen. He's been here all the time. What? And he is presently at your deathbed. He sees the finished work because he is present at the finished work. He's presently in whatever suffering is yet to come that you have not yet experienced. And he is presently at any redemption that you have not yet seen. This is why Paul can say, and we know this, that a God who is eternal, a God who stands outside of what we see so narrowly now, 
is and has been and will be because he is and I am, he says is his name. He is doing something in our future, our past and our present that will guarantee an end that is redemptive even though the meaninglessness of today's suffering is not needed but is present because we live on planet death. What God is doing here is he's taking a beacon of hope an eternal hope, and he's jamming it into the middle of our storm and saying, I know that your suffering is greater than you can imagine, and I know that you cannot see how this means anything good. And so I'm going to stick this eternal, uncomprehendable thing in front of you to say, I, the God that transcends all, I have promises that will even make this, even make this, meaningful, even though in of itself it is meaningless. That's what he's saying. Now look, he makes it tangible. To, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the, big, that's the big, like, he foreknew me. He knew me intimately before. He predestined something for me. And what is this predestined? That I would be conformed to the image of his son. See, at first, that's a, that's a bit of a downer, isn't it? I mean, you go, no, I'm, I'm a Christian. I wouldn't say that's a downer. No, no, it's a downer. Let me, let me explain, right? What we really want is this horrid reality that's in front of me that is overwhelmingly emotionally exhausting and I don't even know what to pray anymore. What I want you to tell me, God, is how this is going to matter tomorrow or next week or next month. How can I look back and give this meaning by extracting some future that's going to work out? And God's saying, I, I, it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that what good is going to come out of all of this is that all of this will collectively fold into something I am doing, which is to conform all of you to the likeness of Christ. And the reason we don't like that is because we don't understand what it means to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. See, we want circumstances to be good. But what we don't get is the likeness of Christ. Who is Christ? Christ is the eternal God who is justice, he is mercy, he is goodness, he is freedom, he is light, he is power. He is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. He is transcendent of circumstance and transcendent of planet earth and transcendent of death and transcendent of all things terrible. He is perfection embodied. He is the full unadulterated expression of freedom. And the more we become like him, the more all of those things become true for us. The more like Christ we become, the less all of this affects us, matters to us, does it? It's still here. And someday, when we leave this planet of death, all we will know is perfection and wonder and beauty and redemption. And all we will see is the wonder in all things. That's what it means to become like Christ. You see, when he says, I'm working for your good, do you know what your good is? Do you know what my good is? To be more like Jesus today, tomorrow, the next day, and eventually a finished work in Christ. And here's what he said, I promise you, that all the meaningless suffering that this planet produces every day that you are involved in, it has no meaning because it is just death, but I will bring about from it 
the conformity to Christ for all of you to finish the work I promised so that your redemption might be fully realized because I am the one who foreknew. I am the one who predetermined or predestined. I am past, I am present, and I am future presently. I am not only the one who sees all things, but I am all things, and I am in all places now. And you can be confident in that. And then he says this, look at this. He says this. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that's about Jesus. And I'm just going to pretend I didn't read that because that's an hour's worth of preaching. And we're going to deal with that in chapter 9. But we're just going to get just later. Uh, verse 30. And those whom he predestined to be conformed to Christ's likeness, in other words, he chose us, he also called. There's the tangible piece. You didn't know he foreknew you. You didn't know that he predestined you, but you know he called you. How do you know? Because when you encountered the gospel and went, <gasps> he was calling you. <laughs> Welcome. He called you. And you go, oh, I, I totally picked that. No, no, you didn't. We'll get to that in chapter nine. Um, and those whom he called, he also justified. Once he called you, he made you righteous. You didn't make yourself righteous because you were awesome. No, he did that for you too. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now here's the cool thing about glorified. What tense is that in? Past tense. That's odd, isn't it? If you're a grammar a professional, you'd go, this is the, the wrong tense on the last word. All the other things are in our past. He's already called us. He's already justified us. But are you glorified yet? Don't say yes, because that would be terrible. This is not glory. <laughs> this is horrible. Glory is yet to come. So why did he say, and he also glorified? Because he is presently past and presently present and presently future. As far as he is concerned, it is done. And if it is done as far as he is concerned, then what is it? It is done. See, our hope is not that there will be a silver lining to today's suffering. There may be, and I pray there is, because that's always awesome. But that is not our hope. That is not our guarantee. Our hope is that he has finished this work. And you know what Paul says in conclusion to all of this? It's a verse for next week, but I'm going to touch on it because it just is part of this week too. Here it is, Paul's conclusion to all of this. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me close with this. The Roman church that is receiving this letter at this time, five years after they read this letter, something is going to happen to that Roman church. So Claudius was in power and he kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome. Remember that? That's why the whole thing happened in the Roman church. Then Nero came to power, took over from Claudius, and he invited all the Jewish people back into Rome and he said to the church, you do your thing, love you. If somebody invites you back into Rome and says, you do your thing, how hopeful are you? Very, like this, this emperor's going to be awesome. Five years after this letter is read by the Roman church, Nero will go ballistic. And the greatest persecution that the church has ever faced to date will happen under Nero. Nero will take believers. I apologize ahead of time for this, but we need to know. He will take believers and he will take them alive. And he will take a giant post with a spike at the top of it. And he will spike them to the top of the post from the bottom up. They are alive. Their organs are crushed and they are bleeding out. He will pour tar over them and he will light them on fire to light his parties as lamps as you walk into one of Nero's parties. Living human Christians will be on fire. Spike to pulse. I want to ask you a question. 
Where is the silver lining in that? What do you get to do? Oh, any second now I'm going to be a better counselor for the next guy that gets burned alive. No, there's no hope in that. There's no beauty, there's no redemption, there's no nothing. And as the church, they would feel five years from now that God has abandoned them. And this verse, 28, 29, 30, and 31, is not a silver lining guarantee. It is a beacon of hope jammed into our present from eternity to say it may not mean anything now, but I promise you, I will make it beautiful. Not because I let it happen or because it is beautiful, but because I am the author of all things and I will make death become life. That's what I do. So when you are in a place that you cannot comprehend and you see no meaning in the circumstances you currently walk in and you see no life in them and all you find is one declaration after the next of a sense of hopelessness, That drive-by verse that we scatter like pixie dust is not a drive-by verse for pixie dust. It is a beacon of hope that divides the curtain between the present and the eternal and reminds us of what God is and what he is doing so that we know that it is God's character and God's very essence that demands that this will be true because he cannot abandon those whom he foreknew those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified, and those whom he has glorified. And that includes us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for silver linings. We thank you for moments where we see great good come out of great difficulty. We thank you that this planet includes some of those moments. We thank you that we don't have to expect constantly that everything will never turn out well that many times they will. We thank you that we can have hope even in the present circumstances that maybe, though we walk through great difficulty now, that it'll turn out okay. And we, we hold on to those hopes because you have allowed us to and because you tell us to pray for those things. And yet, we know that there are times on this planet of death where a stake has been driven through and tar has been poured and we are burning alive and There really is no space where a silver lining shows up. Thank you that into that space you jam this beacon. Romans 8, 28, 29, 30, and 31. That when the suffering is unbearable and meaningless and seems to have no redemptive reality, that you separate the curtain from the temporal to the eternal, give us a vision of who you are, of what you have, what you are, and what you will do, that you are doing, and that we can trust that you will take death and make it life. You will take meaningless suffering and make it matter. Not because it matters, but because you will make it so. We hold on to you Because you are all we have to face these giant things. Show us more as we enter the rest of the chapter 8. Show us more because I know there's more to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.